use the term a lot of ourselves in Wales, but we are sent there as missionaries. Um, If people even use that term anymore, I think it's often associated with Mormonism. We have Mormon missionaries that come through our village. Uh, So if people ask me what I do or what I'm doing, I'll either say I'm in Christian work or I'll say I'm a pastor, although sometimes people don't really know what that is either. Uh, I don't call myself a vicar, although that's what some people would call me. Um, I'm not a vicar, but um, being involved in mission work is necessarily a gospel work. We as Christian people, we know, just as we read from Matthew 28, Christ commanded his disciples to go and make disciples. And that involves taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet we must always remember that we're not just people who try to give the gospel. We are people who still need the gospel. And the wonderful thing is that it is the gospel itself that provides us with the fuel, uh, the motivation to go and seek to take the gospel to others. And that's why I've asked you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians, you may know, is all about how God is glorifying Himself by bringing together all kinds of people from different backgrounds, different cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds into one body called the church. A group of sinners saved by grace. And that grace, an understanding of that grace, is so important that Paul begins the letter really with what a lot of people understand to be a first century hymn. All about God's grace at work in sinners for His own glory. That's the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 2 begins with more of a personal application where Paul begins to focus on how that grace worked itself out in the lives of those people. And he walks us through important gospel truth as he does so. And you as Christians, you need to understand the gospel. You need to have the gospel grip your heart. If you are ever going to live in a way that will result in gospel advance through your life. And so in the first, we're going to look at, first of all, just the first nine verses. Which are all about how the gospel is a message about how God works powerfully in the lives of sinful people. It gives us something of a before and after snapshot. Paul talks in verse one, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In the first three verses of this chapter, he goes into a little bit of detail about what they were like, what their spiritual status was. Because the reality is that for Christian people, before the gospel comes to us, before we come to faith in Christ, we're spiritually dead. And this is true of everyone still who is not a believer. And Paul's bringing this to their remembrance. He, I'll read these verses for us before we go any further into them. He says, 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul wants them to be reminded and We need to be reminded that before the gospel came to us, we were desperately in need. We were dead in our sins. This was true of our basic nature. That's how he describes this in verse 1. Spiritually dead in sin. This is seen in in our basic patterns of life. He goes on to describe how we walked according to the course of this world. A world that's fallen. A world that's in need of redemption. We, before Christ came to us, before we came to faith in Him, we walked just like the rest of the world walked. We lived just like the rest of the world lived. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. So not only our basic patterns of life demonstrating our, our, our spiritual deadness, but the fact that we're under the direction of the evil one. And it was true in our basic desires. Verse 3, we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we possibly could have been, but it does mean that in our minds, at the very seed of our desires, we were fallen. We were dead. We were unable to choose what was right. And because of that, our basic standing before God was that we were under His wrath. We were happy to live that way. You, Some of you maybe have been Christians long enough that that just seems like a distant memory. But we need to be reminded of that. It's not healthy for a Christian to go through and just be disgusted by the world around them. And that's their their sole attitude towards non-Christians. Because you were there too. The only difference between you and a non-Christian is the grace of God. And so Paul reminds them of where they came from. He's celebrated in chapter 1 that the glorious grace of God, how He is redeeming sinners to the praise of the glory of His grace. But now he's reminding them here in chapter 2, be sure you remember where you came from. You were spiritually dead in your sins. Thankfully, that's not the whole story. In verse 4, he turns to the positive when he says, and these are just glorious words. These words, people have made much of these two words over the centuries of church history in verse 4. But God. And you must have a grip on this reality as a Christian. Your only reason for hope, the only reason you're no, you're no longer the way verses 1 through 3 described you is but God. God stepped in. Before the gospel came to us, we were spiritually dead, but God gives spiritual life. And in this before and after snapshot, we must remember that this is not like what we're accustomed to seeing. You know, whenever you're accustomed to a before and after advertisement, whenever you're exposed to a before and after advertisement 
Or maybe you, you've watched the television show where they show you some old dilapidated house and someone comes in with all these plans of how they're going to renovate and make it nice. Or you watch, you look at some advertisement in a magazine that's trying to advertise or sell you uh, dietary supplements and they've got somebody who just looks like, you know, they're pasty white, broken down, bad hair, overweight. That's the before picture. And then afterwards, they're, they're well tanned and they've got nice hair and a big bright smile and, and they're trying to sell you something. They say, you know, this will be you if you, if you buy this product. That's, that's not the kind of before and after we have here. It's not, well, you were terrible before, but now you're great. That's not Paul's point. Look at that passage. Who is great? Who is this passage celebrating? It's God. God gives life. This text draws attention to the glorious grace of God. So that while we were once dead in our sins, now we have been brought to life. We need to grasp that we've been granted glorious privileges in Christ. You see in verse um, 5, it says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As a Christian, you daily, no doubt, just like I do, experience failure. The, the grim reality sometimes that you know you're not what you ought to be. But Paul wants you to know that God wants you to know in this passage that you are gloriously privileged. Think of this. You know, sometimes believers, particularly those with a, with a sensitive conscience, can become so discouraged about where we are spiritually. You know, you get very, it's easy to get very focused on all the things you're not all the all the all the ways you're failing but think about this particularly when you're discouraged once you were dead and now you're alive you're alive and you are in Christ you're actually seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ your heavenly father's view of you is not as some dirty failure but someone who is in Christ. As far as God is concerned, you are already seated in heavenly places. Rejoice in that. No, you're not all you should be. And you never will be until glory. But you are in Christ. The victory is won. We need to remind ourselves of this constantly. And Paul doesn't really speak of the cross so much in this passage. He speaks of it Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, where he talks about how uh, we're saved, we're redeemed by the blood of his son. And much of our, many of our hymns, many of our Christian songs remind us of what Christ has done for us. How is this true? How could this be true that you've been brought to life? It's because of the cross. It's because Christ died for you so that you can live in him. I want to share with you the words of a Welsh hymn translated into English, thankfully. We sing this occasionally in our church. It goes this way. It says, In Eden, sad indeed that day, my countless blessings fled away. My crown 
fell in disgrace. But on victorious Calvary, that crown was won again for me. My life shall all be praise. Faith, see the place and see the tree where heaven's prince instead of me was nailed to bear my shame. Bruised was the dragon by the sun. Though two had wounds, there conquered one. And Jesus was his name. You have all of this because Christ died for you. He gladly poured his life out for you. And why did that happen? Well, we need to be aware of these great terms used in this passage. It speaks, first of all, of God's rich mercy. Verse 4. God being rich in mercy. Why did God save you? Why does He still love you? He's rich in mercy. Why was He rich in mercy? Because of His great love with which He loved us. Christian, do you know that God loves you with what He Himself calls great love? This is not casual. This is not based on circumstances. This is mighty, infinite, great love. The thing we we need to see about God is that He is an everlasting, infinite fountain of love. It's holy love. And He was glad to, to redeem you because of His great love. In verse 7, it speaks of His grace towards us so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. This is undeserved favor. And you know, this is hard for some people. You know, we're, we are intractable legalists, most of us. We like to deal in terms of merit. We, turn, we tend to treat other people on those terms as well. The question is, do you deserve it? That's how we treat people. Many, most religious systems work on this basis. Do you want paradise? Do you want heaven? Do you want acceptance? Well, you had better live up to the standard. You had better perform. That's how most religious systems work. That's how we tend to think. Do you want me to love you? Do you want me to be generous to you? Well, I'm just hard enough to say you better earn it apart from the grace of God. That is not how you ever get a single thing from God. It all comes by grace, which is so, so humbling. We like to think that we, if we have some good things, that we've earned it. Uh, We take pride in our achievement. And yet salvation is all of grace. It's just grace. Why is it just grace? Well, we see that in verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Heaven's not going to be full of people bragging and patting themselves on the back and congratulating one another about how they finally made it. 
It's so that no one may boast. So that we all boast about our great God. So that we're all rejoicing in His great grace. The riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That word kindness is a word that's used particularly in cases where someone takes pity on someone else and shows generosity towards them. You who were dead in your sins were in desperate need of God's kindness. And all of, all of eternity will be celebrating the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is how God has dealt with us. This is a, a marvelous thing. I mean, where else will you find this? Who else will you turn to to receive this? This is all found in Christ and nowhere else. I mean, we're used to applauding people when they show kindness to people that we think deserve it. You know, maybe you know, when someone uh, maybe starts a charity to help children who are starving in a developing country that suffered a civil war, and we think, yeah, those children, they didn't do anything to deserve that. They didn't ask to be in that situation. That's good. You should help them. Or when someone establishes a shelter to assist victims of domestic abuse, and you, your heart goes out to people like that, and you think, oh, that's good, yeah. Good for you that you did that. But you know, God actually, He does things for people who are criminals and rebels and undeserving sinners. This is how He works. He gives grace. Why are you here this morning as a Christian or this afternoon? Because God gives grace. He gives grace. Grace upon grace. And so we receive this by faith. That's why Paul goes out of his way in verses 8 to 9 to establish this. By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. Now, I've gone to a little bit of length here just to help us see the wonderful grace of God that we're reminded of in the Scriptures. Now, this does connect to gospel advance. And I want you to see that in verse 10. Where this passage concludes really has a lot to do with Christian mission. Verse 10, Paul says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The gospel is a message about how God works powerfully in the lives of sinful people. And the gospel then results in a life of good works. And I just want to explore this for a few moments. What are the good works? How does this work itself out in our lives? Because living a life of good works in gratitude for God's grace is radically contrary to how we ordinarily think. Most religious systems teach, perform, achieve, and you will be accepted. Live up to the standard and you will be blessed. The gospel message is, you are blessed. You are accepted. You are saved. Now go out and live for the glory of God. Now, this kind of thinking was lost for a long time. 
back in October, our church, as many churches did, we remembered the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On the 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg his 95 theses in which he was protesting the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church, which was, aside from a few pockets of people here and there, the Catholic Church was the Christian church in Europe. It had lost the gospel. It was recovered by others like Martin Luther and other reformers. And in his day, in the medieval church, the primary purpose of good works was that of earning merit for salvation. This this hung over people. Why be good? Why give to the church? Why give your life for Christian service? Because that's how you get to heaven. And if you really wanted to be focused on that, the only way to do it was to be a priest or a monk. Or a nun. In fact, people who worked in the church were, in the Catholic Church, they were viewed as really the only ones who were serving God. Everybody else was just kind of taking up space. You know, their job was to support the aristocracy and give money to the church. And, and the only significant thing they could do was follow the sacraments. The recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone changed all this. Justification is a big word. It means being counted righteous. God justifies you through faith alone. You're counted righteous, not because of your good works, but through faith in Christ. And when that doctrine was recovered, it changed everything because it removed the necessity of earning salvation through your work because everyone's declared righteous through faith in Christ. So if we're saved by grace alone and not through anything we do, What is the point of doing good works? Well, elsewhere, Scripture teaches us the good works are evidence of real faith. They're one way we give glory to God. You think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when Paul talks in verse 10, the way he does in Ephesians 2.10 about how we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, he's not talking about something that's kind of extra to the Christian life. It's actually at the very heart of the Christian life. It's part of how you glorify God with your life because of the great grace that he's shown you. In fact, in 2 Timothy or 2 Timothy 3, we're reminded that one of the purposes of Scripture, which is breathed out by God, is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every kind of good work. So I've racked my brains about this before. What are the good works? Okay, you might be sitting there thinking, all right, yes, God's been gracious to me. I want to do good works to glorify him. What does that mean? What do I have to do? Well, the simplest way to understand it is this. Good works are the result of loving your neighbor as yourself. You you could go through the New Testament and, and comb through the Bible for all the commands you're supposed to obey, but you can sum up the entire law in two commands, right? Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. What are the good works you're called to? Any way you can love your neighbor as yourself. And in a culture where people are hostile to Christianity, good works are essential as a witness to the world. 
I heard uh, one pastor in the UK say this. He said, in our culture, people don't care if Christianity is true. They're interested in whether it works. And what he what he means by that is that people are wanting to know, is Christianity good for anything? Will it change my life? Will it help anyone? And, you know, those are legitimate questions, aren't they? Now, in the church, we tend to be loaded up with arguments for why Christianity is true. Why you should be, believe the Bible. Why we should believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. And those are obviously that's vital. That's essential for even understanding the gospel. But where we struggle, I know where in Wales, uh, where churches in Wales often struggle is showing a secular world what Christianity is good for, whether it actually works. I mean, do you ever reflect on this this verse in, in 1 Peter where he talks about being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that lies within you? And and perhaps you've reflected like I have at times. You know, I don't get asked that. I've got all the I've got the whole spiel. You know, I've got the whole pitch. You know, I I can tell people if they ask me, but I don't get asked. And sometimes we don't get asked because. We're lacking in the good works. Oh, we're good people. You know, we we read our Bibles. We go to church uh, we maybe you know you'd probably have hopefully you have some sort of parameters in your life for what you will and will not do, uh, but the good works really are connected to your neighbor. In fact, Martin Luther was was known for saying this: God doesn't need your good works; your neighbor does. So when Paul arrives where he does in verse ten, after laying out the fact that you are saved by grace. Because you were loved with a great love. This is extremely relevant for gospel advance. You are his workmanship. You are his creation. You were created in Christ for good works. And the the marvelous thing is, is that this is not complicated. You don't have to lay out some deeply thought through strategy necessarily to, to do the good works. Because God is prepared beforehand good works for you to walk in. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And one marvelous truth that came out of the Reformation was the idea of vocation. That that everybody has a calling or even multiple callings. That's what vocation means. And essentially what a calling is, is anything God's given you to do. So, you know, I have multiple callings. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a missions worker, I'm a neighbor. You could probably add a few others to those. And in each of those callings, I've got good works to do. I've got ways that I need to love my neighbor as myself. And you've got callings. You might be a grandparent. You might be a father, a mother, an employee, a business owner, a student, Maybe you are a landscaper. Maybe you work in an office. Maybe you work in a government institution. Uh, We all have different callings. And in each of our callings, there are good works to be done. Think about that. God has prepared beforehand 
good works for you to do. And, and I know for the, the person working in, the, in what we sometimes call the secular workforce, this can be remarkably liberating. You know, there are a lot of men and women in the workplace that, that all they do is feel guilty because they haven't been able to witness to people in their, in their office. And they conclude, you know, really that the, the only way I'm going to be able to do any meaningful service for God is if I, if I do it in the church, if I do something on Sunday, teach a Sunday school class, lead worship, uh, you know, whatever else there is to do. There's lots of little, lots of various jobs to do. And people think, you know, that's where I serve God. And I just go out in the world and the only purpose of my job is to earn a paycheck so I can give some of that to the church. And that's, that's, that's where the significance is. And I would encourage you, if God's called you to a job, don't, don't feel bad about it. Don't think that you're somehow not really doing real Christian service. You, you can serve God where you work. Be honest. Be kind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do good work. I heard one, one well-known Christian speaker, he's raised the question, well, what does it look like to be a good Christian pilot? What, 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 how can a pilot, Christian pilot pilot planes for the glory of God? And the answer is, land the plane. <laughs> land the plane safely. You know, do good work. Serve people through your work. You are called to good works. And we're finding more and more in a secular culture where people aren't inclined to ever visit church, where people need a lot of time to consider whether they even really want to have a relationship with you as a Christian, it is, it's this, the good works. People, you can try to have outreach events and, and come get people into your building. We struggle with that where we are. That's why we, we, hold, we hold events in a neutral venue as often as we can. The, the, the key strategy is this, it's relatively uncomplicated. Equip people for good works. That's something that's transferable to any part of the world. So I want to encourage you this afternoon. Consider your neighbor. How can you love your neighbor as yourself? As a gospel-motivated, God-loving, Christ-following person, how can you take all of that and apply it to loving your neighbor as yourself? You were made for that. You were saved for that. And God has ordained before the foundation of the world that you would live like that. So rejoice in the gospel and live a life of good works for the glory of God. May God give us all grace to live like that. Amen.